20% of all global emissions come from factory farming, which didn't actually exist around 1945. It's an abomination, the way that we produce food. Most people don't realize just how cruel and horrible it is. Um, and we've all got to wake up. You know, we've got to wake up, change our diets, change the way we eat, change the way we farm and help save the planet while you're doing it. The global food system is facing unparalleled challenges and changes. So how can we reset for a better, more sustainable future? Introducing Control-Alt-Meat, the weekly podcast that explores the issues transforming the global food business. I'm your host, Katie Briefel. Come join me as I speak to the innovators and investors, policymakers and product developers, the scientists and the chefs, who are all on the front line reshaping the future of our food. Today's guest is Jim Mellon, a visionary entrepreneur and legendary investor. Jim's investment philosophy is underpinned by his ability to recognize emerging trends that give rise to new industries or major shifts in markets. These trends, which often turn into money fountains, have included the financial crisis of 2008 and 9, as foreseen in the first book Jim co-authored entitled Wake Up, and subsequently in the new science and technologies detailed in Cracking the Code and Fast Forward. In recent years, Jim has invested his time and attention into the field of longevity, exploring the fundamental mechanisms of aging. Jim and his partners have now set up Juvenescence, a company developing therapies for aging and the diseases of aging. In September 2020, he published Moo's Law, an investor's guide to the new agrarian revolution. Jim has a vision that within the next couple of decades, world agriculture will be radically transformed by the advent of cultivated meat technology. In the episode, he illustrates why such an advancement is absolutely necessary and lists his key predictions for the industries of dairy, meat and fish and shines a light on the investments one could make to become part of the new agricultural revolution. Jim, thank you for coming on the podcast. So you wrote Moose Law, an investor's guide to the agrarian revolution in the middle of COVID. And the book is all about solutions and optimism for the future of the food system. You know, some critics have described it as a ray of hope in bleak times. But the UN latest statistics say that from 2019 to 2020, the number of undernourished people grew by as many as 161 million. And, as, and we need to learn, as you say in your book, to feed 10 billion people by 2050. So a huge challenge is in front of us. What is the cause of your optimism? Great question, Katie. Um, I am generally an optimist, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But I think that it's clear that the science is catching up with our needs as human beings. And so humanity is catching up as well. It might not seem it to everyone, but it is. And technology has been evolving very quickly. My predictions are, and I know that Jeremy and others have similar views, is that one, the dairy industry, as we know, it, is on the way out and will be, will be gone in the next 10 years. The idea of milking cows, which are the largest emitters of methane on the planet, is defunct because of all the new technologies that are coming out. But secondly, the meat industry is on its way to being at least half occupied with plant-based and cell ag alternatives. And on the fish side, and those of, of us who've seen Seaspiracy, and anyone who's interested in this space probably has, realizes that the fishing industry is probably one of the greatest culprits in terms of harms to the environment. It's possible that as much as 50% of fish 
could be produced by what is known as cell aquaculture, that is effectively growing fish in labs by the end of this decade, which is you know, obviously uh, very, very quick. It's only nine years away. Uh, and indeed, it is moving at a very, very fast pace. And in your book, there's a quote by Bruce Friedrich, which draws a parallel between cell phones and Zoom and Google Meet replacing how we communicate. And making meat from plants, he argues, is going to do a similar job. But I guess some would argue that we've been eating animal meat for a lot longer than we've communicated in certain ways or used cameras to take photos, for example. So do you think that parallel works? I think Bruce is trying to get a message across. Um, He's basically talking about how technology can conflate consumer behavior very quickly. So science is moving much faster than it used to. Uh, And just in time, actually, because we need it to move faster, given the climate emergency we're in and given the uh, frailty of the food supply chain that we are suffering from at the moment. And of course, it's important to note that we didn't always eat meat. Our ancestors ate, the the very far distant ancestors ate predominantly plants. And it wasn't until fire came along and they could cook meat that they, they ate it. So it's not the case that necessarily meat can't be replaced very quickly. And of course, the new alternatives are just like meat. The plant-based stuff tastes like meat. um, And the cell ag stuff is meat. Um, So it's also important to note that at least 2,000 years worth of transport was provided by horse and cart. And then in the space of five years, it was gone about 100 100 and something years ago. So it's, it's possible that things can change very quickly. Absolutely. And your book titled Moo's Law is a riff on Moore's Law. Could you explain what that parallel means? Uh, Yeah, so uh, Moore's Law was invented by the founder of Intel, uh, Gordon Moore, an American. He and his colleagues invented the semiconductor and uh, his law came was basically that every 18 months, the price of semiconductors would go down by 50% and the efficiency would double. And so it has proved, and it's been almost unerringly accurate for the last 52 years. And so scale and cost, in the case of semiconductors, are directly linked. And so it is in cell ag foods. So as the production of cell ag products, which is not just food, but also materials, goes up, the price comes down as well. And that's why I called it Moo's Law. And in fact, if you go back to the first cell ag burger in 2013, so eight years ago, its cost was about $300,000 and it's now $9. So it's very similar in terms of trajectory to Moore's Law. And it won't be very long before I, we reach what I call griddle parity, where, is the, where the price of the alternative meat products comes down to the price of conventionally produced products, and maybe even below that. So grid parity, this is another riff <laughs> off, or riff off, is very well known to investors in the energy sector. And that's the point where renewable energy, like wind power and solar power, gets down to the same price as fossil fuel energy. And in fact, that's already happened with solar power. That's called grid parity. So um, in the case of meat, I've called it griddle parity for obvious reasons. And some people have said these alt meat products or cell ag products um, where you extract animal cells to produce burgers, they've labeled them things like frankenfoods. What would be your counter to the argument that these are unnatural and weird? Well, those people who say that are entirely wrong because there's no GM, genetic modification involved in this process. And actually the way to look at it is if you regard a cow as a factory producing meat, which is what it is, in, at least in intensive farming, 
and you look at the process with which cell ag uh, meat is made in a factory, um, they are identical in many ways. A cow is derived from stem cells and the cell ag meat is derived from the same stem cells. And the process of production is pretty similar because the cow eat, eats whatever it's given to eat. It takes in the nutrients from grass or uh, feed on the feedlot, whatever it's made to eat, which are roughly equivalent to the nutrients that are fed to the stem cells that are extracted from the cow in the first place to produce uh, cell ag. Multiple surveys have been done by various institutions, including by the JCF, that indicate that consumer acceptance, particularly among younger generations, will be high when this stuff comes out, especially when people learn about the environmental destruction caused by intensive farming. And people who care about animal welfare are obviously uh, all over this. So someone like myself, doesn't eat meat, someone like Jeremy doesn't eat meat. Um, and that's becoming a big part of the human population, people who care about animal welfare. But it'll become even larger as more and more films and documentaries are shown to the general population about just how cruel the process of intensive farming is. Mm. Um, also, Katie, we've got a pandemic going on at the moment, as we are all aware. Um, this comes out of agricultural malpractice in the Far East. We're lucky, in a sense, that this is a viral pandemic. And I say lucky because we found vaccinations that work against it, and it's probably petering out, at least in our country at the moment. But if we, uh, God help us, got a bacterial pandemic and the antibiotics didn't work, uh, then as in the Black Death, maybe up to a third to a half of the world's population could be wiped out. And the reason that we need to avoid that is because at the moment, 80% of antibiotic production goes into farmed animals. And so the farmed animals eat all these antibiotics, which promote growth and to stop um, disease in animals that are in very close proximity, from, mm. for instance, from getting swine flu or avian flu. Um, and so human beings eat those antibiotics and they become resistant to antibiotics as a result. And that's really, really potentially very bad news. So we need to stop producing animals intensively for all sorts of reasons, but one of them is to stop the potential of a much worse pandemic than the one we're in now. Absolutely. And there, there's not a shortage of list of rational reasons why we need to change why we eat. I think it's all very clear. Um, as you say, these documentaries have done an amazing job of educating people. However, the harsh reality is a lot of people still don't still don't know and a lot of people know but don't care. And in your book, you've spoken about the need for a customer centric solution to this problem. So these meat com alt meat companies are trying to bring their product as close as possible to the meat that people really love and eat and are emotional about in a way. I mean, food is in some ways a very cultural and emotional choice. So how important do you think it is that we're really trying to mimic that um, that meat and kind of embedding ourselves in a culture that kind of already exists or do we need to sort of disrupt it completely? Well, the reason why all these alt meat brands are gaining market share is because they're so good. So 20 years ago, uh, vegetarian options were not so good. Um, you know, they were sort of in the back of the supermarket shelves and very few people bought them. Um, but now they've become really good. And anyone who's tried a Beyond Burger, for instance, will know that it tastes just like a regular burger. But it's clear that in some ways, the plant-based stuff isn't much better for you from a health point of view. Um, although some of the brands are beginning to address that particular issue. The cell ag meat, on the other hand, is much better than eating the supposedly real stuff because it doesn't have any hormones or antibiotics, because it doesn't have any capacity to make you sick from contamination. Um, and uh, 
it, it is in every respect no waste um no environmental destruction better for the planet and more and more people you know just in the last couple of days there's been huge amounts of attention put on to cop 26 and uh the environmental damage that we're that, that the global warming is producing at the moment this is the solution at least in part to that the franken food accusations are you know i call them the agro luddites so people for instance who when the horse and carts came out said you'll get blown up in the car or you know the, the wind uh, at, at high speed will not allow you to breathe and all this sort of alarmist rubbish um but it took as i said earlier five years to replace the horse and cart with the car and i think the same thing's going to happen here I'd like to talk a little bit about that current resistance, the old guard, as you say, that it's sort of fighting this clean ag revolution. Um, but, you know, the US meat business is as big as the GDP of Hungary, which you say in your book, and they are lobbying really hard. So what's your take on how we can try and tackle um, that intense lobbying and resistance? Yeah, great question. So one is to, you know, to have the top of the tree, in, particularly in the United States, backing the sort of stuff that we're doing. And it's clear that the Biden administration understands that the food production process is one of the key drivers of climate change. And he's not standing, and nor is his administration standing in the way of the development of alt proteins. And as far as I'm aware, at every single term, the cattlemen's associations, and there are a number of those in the US, have lost their legal battles, even in state legislatures where there's a high proportion of beef being produced they haven't won. So that's great news. And just for listeners, so this is um, a, a case where people, where they were arguing against using language like mi- milk for old milk or sausage um, for these sort of um, alternative meat sausages, right? That's correct. Uh, I mean, obviously, they are also going to wage a battle claiming that somehow or other this isn't real food and you've got to be careful because it comes out of a lab, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think they'll lose both those battles and they certainly lost in Europe. So although they're well organized and they've got money, they haven't produced much traction in terms of stopping the progress here. Um, and, you, you know, if you go into a supermarket today, as opposed to 10 years ago, so let's say Tesco here in the UK, Tesco's got its own line of vegan meats and foods, and it's taking up a lot of shelf space. Um, and so the more shelf space there is means that the more consumers are confronted with the, the choice and in fact are are choosing to buy this stuff. And, you know, you only have to look at what happened in the milk market in the US in the last 10 years to see that alternative milks, so made from almonds or soya or that sort of stuff, have gone from less than 1% of the market to 20% of the market in just 10 years um, to see what's going to happen to the meat market. And, um, you know, the the market share will be gained incredibly quickly um, by the sort of companies that Jeremy and ourselves uh, invest in. Now, alternative milks are not necessarily good for the environment. They're not necessarily any better for you, but people are eating them because, or drinking them rather, because they think that they'll be better for their health. But next year, when we see the first fermentation products on mass coming out of Perfect Day, NoQuo, etc., mm-hmm. which are exact replicas of milk without the problems of milk production, um, because they can produce whey and casein in, in labs, um, then we're going to see a massive increase in share in uh, alternative milk products and then 
that will be closely followed by alternative fish and alternative meat products. So this is going to be a wake-up call for dairy farmers. If you're a dairy farmer, you should get out of the business right now. And I was really interested to learn your book about the infant nutrition market um, and the incredible growth that that's having. Um, could you talk a little bit about the innovation there? Yeah, uh, it's a big market. Um, in Asia in particular, uh, women don't breastfeed their, culturally don't breastfeed their infants and uh, they use infant formula. So it's a, I think it's a 60 billion US dollar market growing quite quickly. It represents a very big market for the leading New Zealand company, uh, which is a dairy company called Fonterra as an example. But there've been all sorts of scandals involving contamination in infant formula, uh, whether the infant formula is as good for infants as it, it could be, et cetera. So there's a big market there in terms of producing infant formula in lab conditions, which comes out perfectly with no contamination and may even be engineered to be better than the current infant formula products that are on the um, on the market. Now, some of the companies are trying to get uh, cells to act as uh, mammary cells to express breast milk. We're not sure that that's the right approach because every woman's breast milk has a particular signature uh, and it may not be correct to produce a one-size-fits-all in the lab for all women. Uh, but we are looking at this really very closely, and we expect to make investments in this area in the relatively near future. It's a really interesting space. And pivoting a little bit to talk about how large corporations are partnering with these alternative meat brands. They've adopted some of their products and incorporated them into their menus with some great success. Is this a positive trend in your eyes or is this big corporations trying to sort of increase their profit and greenwash their brands? Well, I imagine it's both. Um, these corporations understand that they genuinely need to create greener product lines. They will, I mean, you have to divide the big corporations in between those that produce and process food uh, and those that grow, for instance, cows and pigs and chickens. They are, generally speaking, they're different. Um, so Nestle, Unilever, etc., will, in my opinion, produce anything as long as it's legal and the consumers will buy it. And so that's why they're more likely to adopt these new alternative proteins than companies which are highly established in the animal production field, such as Tyson Foods or Cargill um, or JBS from Brazil. So we have to you know, look at the companies individually. But generally speaking, most of these companies are not just trying to get onto a bandwagon for profit reasons, but because consumers are telling them they get a, they've got to get onto this bandwagon. Uh, otherwise, they'll vote with their purchasing power and, and move to other companies' products. And as the growth in the market picks up pace, is there risk of there being a bit of a bubble for these meat substitute startups? Uh, yes, but we haven't had it yet. I mean, the pricing of these meat substitute companies is, I'm talking about sell ad ones, is not yet stratospheric or in the realm of um, electric vehicles or anything like that. Uh, it may get there one day. I mean, we've already seen Beyond Meat, which is uh, not a cell ad company, it's a plant-based company, uh, having a pretty hefty valuation. And then Oatly, the Swedish oat company, went public in the US and it's, um, you know, it's got a very hefty uh, market capitalization, probably not justified, in my opinion, by uh, its prospects, particularly with fermented milks coming on the market in the next year or so. So there is the beginnings of uh, maybe a consumer uh, a retail investor sort of hype bubble in this area, but we're not there yet. 
And so we talked about this potential bubble. We've also talked about tackling the old guard resistance. And with any new industry, there's always going to be challenges and hurdles. What do you think have been the main challenges and hurdles to date um, in Salag? And what do you think are going to be the biggest ones in the next five to 10 years? Well, my background is in biotech. And uh, the reason I got interested in this, apart from the animal welfare concerns, was that the way in which this food and materials are produced is a biotech process. And so it's something that we understood. And, but obviously, biotech companies don't really care about the cost of their production because the end prices of drugs and is so high, uh, whereas in food, it does matter. So we, the execution risk for the cell ag companies producing food and materials is the main risk. So we've got to get the cell lines right. We've got to have them form well, not just in small bioreactors, which are the big stainless steel tanks that the stuff is produced in, but we've got to do it in very large bioreactors. So going from 200 liters to 2,000, 20,000 liters to 200,000 liters, it's quite easy to do it on a small scale, but it's much harder to do it on a big scale. That's going to be the number one uh, challenge. And the number two challenge is that all these uh, processes require something called growth factors. Growth factors enable the cell lines to divide faster and to divide correctly into, in the case of meat, into uh, muscle and fat. Um, but at the moment, they're crazily expensive. So getting the price of growth factors down is something that's really interesting and gives us opportunities for investing in what we call the picks and shovels of the industry, which is the <coughs> machinery and stuff that goes into making the stuff. But we can see all these improvements uh, happening on a daily basis. So we're totally optimistic that this is going to be executed properly and that very soon we'll have food from uh, factories, lab grown meats and so forth that will be comparable in price, better in every way for the planet and for human beings um, than conventional foods. So it's interesting that you see the biggest challenge as being a sort of technical scientific one that can be solved rather than anything more um, sociological. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone knows that fish, as an example, has uh, microplastics potentially in it, mercury and other nasties. And the, there is a general consensus that when the fish products come on the market, people will be very happy to see perfect fish without any of that stuff, which can cause serious human health problems. In terms of meat, you know, the first market that all these companies are going after, the ones at least that um, we're interested in, are the ground beef products. Because in ground beef, it's not like a steak. You don't see it. You, you kind of, it's formed into a patty or a sausage or something like that. And uh, that's 60% of the US market. And if it's grown in a lab or it's grown in, uh, in a feedlot, I don't think the consumers will care very much. But the great thing about it is it can be explained to consumers that whereas at the moment, one in six Americans has to seek emergency medical treatment because contaminated food, mostly meat, that won't happen anymore because this stuff is, doesn't contaminate human beings because it doesn't have any fecal matter or any nasties that can cause upset and illness, which happens so regularly in the United States. And then for a lot of people, animal cruelty is important, not everyone, but you know, a growing number of people, and um, especially the younger generation. And uh, so I think that we're going to have a very rapid uptake. And if, if you ask me, I'll, I think the big problem will be supply, it won't be demand. 
And you, I picked up on your comment one in six um, people suffering from health issues after eating meat. It's just a mental statistic. And l- linked to that health um, point, some of our plant biggest plant-based names um, are getting increasingly competitive and making health uh, comparative health claims against the others. How helpful do you think that is, or do you think we should just be trying to build the whole category so that consumers trust um, trust these products? Well, I think that consumers will trust the products more if they're healthier. And so the idea of making them healthier is a good one. But as you know, there is a sort of fight to the death between Beyond Meat and Impossible Meat. The two companies really don't like each other. And uh, so they make competing claims about health. But generally speaking, the cell-cultured business seems to be quite polite by comparison. But who knows? And I, I think competition, uh, you know, in terms of claims and competition in terms of human health is a good thing. It's, it's you know, getting the best product on the market. So I'm, I, I think that all that does is to increase consumer awareness that there are these products out there and to make a choice between the ones that are, you know, better for you and the ones that are even better for you. And we've talked a little bit about these big names and also some of the more um, the new things around infant nutrition. What are the less well-known names that you think we should be paying attention to that, you know, you're particularly excited about? Yeah, okay, so I'll give you an example of Meetable, which is a company in uh, in Holland. Uh, Meetable is interesting because at the moment, most of the cell-based meat companies go back to the animal to take samples. I mean, these samples are tiny. They don't hurt the animal. The animal walks off. It's just kind of, you know, once a month, there's a tiny sample taken from it from which stem cells are extracted. But Meetable has worked out a way in which once one sample uh, provides what are called induced pluripotent stem cells uh, that avoids the need to go back to the animal. So in theory, one cow using Meetable's technology could feed the whole world forever. And we, we find that very exciting. And we also like the leather company Vitro Labs, um, which uh, we, we think is really very interesting. So they're producing leather, right, in the same way. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, we got interested in this company for a couple of reasons. One is that leather is not regulated as a food because most people don't eat leather. And the second is that the margins on ultra luxury leather are are good. uh, And the companies that buy that ultra luxury leather don't really care too much about the price of the product that they're buying because the price of handbags and accessories and so forth is so high relative to the, the leather inputs. But the great thing about this company is it's worked out a way of, and it is producing leather and it's selling the leather to the big fashion houses in the world. They've worked out a way in which you can produce leather in a lab of any size at all. It's absolutely perfect. It's as good as, if not better than the best calves leather. It comes out of the lab with no hair on it. So the tanning process is a lot less environmentally destructive. And you don't get things like barbed wire scratches and, uh, you know, or blotches on the leather because it all comes out in a uniform uh, way and so they're getting down to the what I call the griddle parity line very quickly in terms of the price of their leather relative to the price of leather produced in uh, calves expensively produced in in calves and uh, mostly produced in Austria actually of all places so um, they're already selling it they're going to be scaling up their production they've got the largest fashion houses in the world doing that so we really like that company we're putting more money into that company relatively soon.
That's really interesting. It's such a great opportunity to transform that industry. Um, thank you for sharing those. And we've recently seen the approval of cultivated meat in Singapore, meaning it will be on sale for the first time. What kind of regulations stand in the way of the, that protein transition currently? And are there any new regulations you think we are, are needed to help that? In the US, which is the key market really for every, everything, but including food, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, regulates fish solely. So it's only them that regulate fish. And the USDA and the FDA, um, USDA being US Department of Agriculture, and the FDA jointly regulates meat. Um, although there is one exception to that in fish, which is salmon, which is regulated by both. So far, the approval process has been, in, in our view, relatively smooth. There is a little bit of delay in the process. I would not expect, I expect the fermented milks to be on the market next year. Some of the fish lines to be on the market either late this year or the beginning of next year. And, but within 18 months, all the meats to be on the market. And in Europe, I think cell ag products are going to be on the market in about 18 months time. But some smaller countries, which are very food insecure and very anxious to build up their own domestic production of food um, and a little bit more forward thinking, have been allowing this stuff to be sold. So you, already in Singapore, you can buy uh, just eat just nuggets, chicken nuggets in a very limited way, but that will expand. In Israel, you can sample the super meat chicken. And uh, my colleagues were just in Israel uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and they claim it tastes identical to chicken nuggets. And then the next area, I think, where you'll get regulatory approval very quickly is in the Middle East, and particularly in the UAE, which um, is very forward thinking, and uh, where we've opened an office. And uh, then lastly, maybe Hong Kong, another city state that imports a lot of food. And I think the Chinese are going to adopt it very quickly, because you know, after all, their food is, you know, being contaminated, as we know. And they probably want to get healthier food. Absolutely. I mean, we're still seeing wet markets operating um, after everything that's happened. So uh, do you think we're going to see the, the trend reversing um, as quickly as we'd like in, in places like China? Uh, yes, because the Chinese government is, you know, they, they basically want to improve the quality of agricultural practice. They've got a balancing act between, uh, you know, peasant or, or small farm production and improving the food supply. But generally speaking, once the Chinese government gets, as we know, um, and there is companies, there are companies coming out of China left, right and center at the moment. So this is a space that needs to be watched very, very carefully uh, in a positive way. I think actually China will be one of the faster adopters uh, in due course. Interesting. And as we know, there's a, a huge growth of the middle class in um, countries like India. And that with that goes hand in hand an appetite for more animal meat. So if we know that's happening, how can we try and tackle that increased demand for animal meat? Uh, you know, this, this is the difficult one. I mean, if we're looking at carbon emissions in the UK, we account for less than 1% of global emissions, but we're the fastest in terms of major economy in reducing uh, emissions. The government is right behind it. Population is right behind it. But it's very difficult because 30% of emissions, which after all get mixed in the common air, um, come from China. And China is still uh, pumping out new coal power plants. And so the same really is, is with food. But we have to do our bit. Now, China has got to you know, understand, it's got to do something about uh, carbon emissions. And they understand that agriculture is one of the key contributors. But they also understand increasingly that you know, they can't go on as they are creating pandemic risk and uh, illness risk by allowing the current way in which they cultivate pigs 
ducks and chickens because it's unsustainable. So they're going to adopt cell ag and plant-based foods much, much faster than most people think. And, you know, we have to do everything that we can to encourage development of these industries in China and India, because as you rightly point out, they've got every right to have as much animal protein as we have. But if they do, then the whole planet becomes unsustainable. So we've got to find another way of providing it for them. And I guess perhaps the silver lining to what we've seen with this tragic flooding and the wildfires recently around the world um, will be that people will increasingly wake up to the challenge. Um, Fingers crossed that has an impact. Um, And your book, Moose Law, is directed specifically at investors. If you could offer sort of um, one or two key takeaways for your readers, investors, what would they be? What would you sort of summarize as as the things you find most useful? Uh, Katie, you have pointed out, and quite correctly, that the meat industry in the US alone is the size of the GDP of Hungary. But the meat industry worldwide is the size of the Spanish GDP, and it's going to be the size of the UK economy in about 15 years' time. So it's a very, very big price, about $1.4 trillion. But on top of meat, you've got dairy, you've got fish, you've got materials like uh, cotton, as an example, leather, which we talked about earlier on. So, and then You know, Jeremy, for instance, got investments in a collagen company called Geltor, which is a very good company. So there's lots of addressable markets here. The total size of the addressable market is about twice the size of the UK economy, $5 trillion. It's much bigger than the cannabis market, um, which everyone gets so excited about. It's much bigger, probably, than the electric vehicle market that everyone's so excited about. So there's opportunities for investors to make lots of money and to do lots of good at the same time. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, if you look at the internet, you know, 20 something years ago, the internet barely existed, uh, at least in the form that we could use it. And, you know, people were saying, well, what are we going to do with this stuff? How can we use it? And then some, some people worked out that you could actually use it, notably Jeff Bezos of Amazon and others. Um, and that was at the dial-up phase of the internet, when the you know, when you had to connect through using an old telephone line, it went beep, 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 and took about a day to download something <laughs> big. It was very frustrating. So, you know, within 20 years, we've now got smartphones that have the computing power of the original NASA space program, getting the man on the moon. And some people did understand this and made fortunes. Um, so we're at the dial-up phase of the internet. We don't exactly know which companies are going to be the most successful. We know some of them are going to be the very successful ones. And we know This is transformative to the way in which we eat food and the way in which food is produced. And it's a really exciting time to be involved in this. Jim, thank you so much for all of your really generous insights. If um, anyone wants to find out more, apart from reading your book, Moose Law, where else can they go? The works of Peter Singer, who is the greatest animal ethicist, are definitely worth uh, looking at. Jonathan Safran uh, Fur has written a great book called Eating Animals, which I would recommend. I talked about Seaspiracy, the Netflix documentary about the destruction wrought by the fishing industry. Uh, that's definitely worth watching. There are plenty of videos, um, documentaries, etc., etc., that you can look at. And in the back of my book, by the way, all proceeds go to the Good Food Institute, which you know Bruce Friedrich held, is in charge of. And at the back of my book, there's a bibliography and a list of all the documentaries that people might want to have a look at. But do look at it because 20% of all global emissions come from factory farming, which didn't actually exist around 1945. It's an abomination, the way that we produce food. Most people don't realize just how cruel and horrible it is. Um, And we've all got to wake up. We've got to wake up, change our diets, change the way we eat, change uh, the way we farm and help save the planet while you're doing it.
Wonderful. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for the insights and also the optimism. Um, I think there's a lot to learn there. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Katie. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Control Alt Meet. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on social media to help us reach more listeners like you. You can also visit controlaltmeet.com to learn more.